Hello and welcome to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card through Cube. I'm Austin and with me as always is my co-host Connor. How are you today, Connor? Pretty good. Just made a nice latte, so I'm happy. What, made made yourself a nice latte? Yeah, we got an espresso machine. Oh, cool. We'll have to connect offline about that because I'm in the market. I'm curious what you settled on. Actually, for our listeners' benefit, what is it? It's a Smeg espresso machine. We mostly got it because it's really cute and pretty. I mean, it works great. Makes good coffee. I just got back from a like how to brew better coffee at home class. So I feel like we may need to do a... Yeah, how was that? It was awesome. I learned a lot about pour over. I didn't think there was as much difference, uh, but there is. Every single cup from a different pour over dripper tasted very, very different. Like a different, using a different device? Yeah, just, you know, like using a Kalito Wave versus like a Hario V60 Cone versus a Chemex. They were all surprisingly different. It was it was a lot of fun. Huh. Do you have like one hot tip about making better pour over? Oh, um, yeah, I think my biggest hot tip would be make sure to bloom it and let the gases all escape before you pour uh, pour in the rest of the water and then pour in the water in multiple stages or what I've now learned are called attacks um, oh, to extract different attacks. flavor profiles. Yeah, multiple attacks. Should we, do, we should do a mini-sode on coffee. Maybe, or just tell me all these things so I can do it at home. Okay, I'll tell you and record it uh, for the benefit of anyone who wants me to pass on one coffee class worth of wisdom. <laughs> all right, sounds good. All right, should we dive in and talk about the uh, black cards of Kamigawa? Let's do it. All right, first up, we have Ashen Skin Zubera. One in a black for a 1-2 Zubera Spirit. When Ashen Skin Zubera dies, target opponent discards a card for each Zubera that died this turn. We have already done a uh, one-hour dedicated episode just on the Zuberas, so we're not going to rate this Ashen-Skinned fella. We gave him a meh and 2x, and I don't think we're planning to change our minds week to week. So should we just move on, Connor? I think so. I'm, I'm glad he comes right at the beginning because now we can just say, if you missed the Zubera special, just stop right here and go back and listen to that. And then you can return uh, after you've gotten all the Zubera wisdom. Yeah, it's a mini episode by our standards. It's only uh, 50 minutes long, five zero minutes long. Yeah, under an hour. Yeah, so boom, just easy peasy, simple discussion of yep. these uh, somewhat iconic cards. Yeah, just bust that out and then you can come back and hear us talk about Bethal, 2BB for sorcery, which destroys target land or non-black creature, uh, and it can't be regenerated. So this is uh, the first of quite a few removal spells that we're going to have in black. Of course, this kind of hard removal is a big part of black's color identity. But this is this is an interesting one because it can also target land, which is something you don't see too much anymore, especially in black. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. It used to be a larger part. Well, I mean, it used to be a part of the game, right? <laughs> which it really isn't yeah. today. Land destruction, I mean. But yeah, if you go back to their early days of magic, you know, probably the best land destruction spell in the history of the game is Sinkhole, which is BB, destroy target. Uh, I think it's just land, not non-basic land. And yeah, you had a kind of steady, not huge, but steady stream of black land destruction spells up to, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the last one. There might be one or two after this, but this might be the black, last black land destruction spell. Yeah, certainly uh, a waning period in black's land destruction potential. I feel like the question with Bethal and with the many other removal cards that we're going to see is just how much removal we want black to have 
in the cube. At four mana, this isn't the most efficient creature removal, especially because it can't target black creatures and it's a sorcery. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think the fact that it can also destroy land makes it so it has some real potential. But I, I feel like there's this difficult question we're going to have to sort out of how much hard removal we want to have. I think it, it is an interesting question. And I think this is one of the weaker ones. You know, the, the Doomblade thing is funny because you read it and you go, well, it's only one of the five colors that's missed. But, you know, the number of times where that's relevant or uh, always feels higher than it should. Yeah. But I, I do think having the ability to hit a land too here is pretty meaningful upside, actually. You know, the color fixing is not abundant in the block. We'll probably have more of it than it did originally as printed. But still, I think uh, the ability to knock your opponent off a of color as an alternate mode is pretty nice. It is interesting, you know, talking about sort of not being able to target everything. I found that there are a total of 10 black cards in the whole block that mm-hmm. destroy creatures. Only half of those are spells. The other ones are creatures with some form of activated or triggered ability. Not one of those five spells gives just unconditional removal of destroy mm. any creature. Two of those kill a non-black creature like this. Two of them focus on either spirits or mortals. We'll see those later the two rend spells and then one of them only kills legends there's really very very little removal that can just kill anything including black creatures yeah that was kind of i think a much more common pattern for the first half of magic's history i think it's relatively recently that they decided the feel bad pattern there is something they want to move away from i think it largely started just from a flavor standpoint primarily you know the first iconic black removal spell and terror you know i think the idea is black creatures are already scary so they can't get scared yeah. uh, and it's just carried on from there even though honestly i'm not a fan of it i think it leads to a lot of annoying situations that you really couldn't have planned around or played around they're just they feel like bad luck and we, we've been pretty down on like in all of our set reviews so far we've been pretty down on cards that you know can only target a certain color or that give protection from a color or that are just color specific yeah, and plenty of chance to talk about that uh, today with fear too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, and I, I think you're right that it just you know creates these feel bad moments where, in a way that you can't really control for or build your deck around, sometimes the spell is just not going to work, and it's just going to sit in your hand and feel like a waste. I've been fact checking myself. This is far from the last black land <laughs> destruction spell print. It's just a oh really FYI. Yeah, there've been uh, it looks like. Around 12 since then, so not in a, oh. a huge, eh, maybe 10. Not a huge number, but, you know, some. What was the last set that one appeared in? Uh, believe it or not, Modern Horizons 2 had Break the Ice, which is BB, destroy target land that is snow or could produce colorless, and mm-hmm. overload for 4 BB. So pretty unique, weird, almost a wow. sinkhole, like a weird sinkhole kind of land destruction spell. You know, so that was just like... Uh, Last year. Yeah, that feels like a callback to Sinkhole. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, well, one other trivia note. This is actually a reprint, uh, which I hadn't realized the first time around, but this mm-hmm. was originally printed in Urza's Saga and then saw oh. a reprint in 7th and Champion. So it's only been printed three times, all with different art. And this is probably the best of three not very great pieces. The other two are terrible. Mm. I-, I think this is fine. I think it's... Uh, I have it at a um, meh. And I'd probably put two of them in. It, it is a little bit pricey. I think the non-black thing will matter, but I do think the land upside is enough. Yeah, I I also feel like we should have two of them. I lean, I said playable, but this was hmm. the first card that I rated in black. And I think I was probably too generous because I didn't realize I expected there to be a lot of cards like in blue where they're just awful and you want to get rid of them immediately. And that's not the case. No, it's just the creatures in black. Just, yeah. <laughs> 
So, so there are there are more and better spells to come. So I think Meh is probably right for Bethel. All right, double Meh. All right, let's talk about Blood Speaker. Blood Speaker. Blood Speaker is three and a B for a three-two ogre shaman. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may sack Blood Speaker. If you do, search your library for a demon card, reveal that card, and put it into your hand. Then shuffle. Whenever a demon enters the battlefield under your control, return Bloodspeaker from your graveyard to your hand. I found this tough to evaluate because the base rate is not great on his own. You know, four mana, three, two is not getting anybody's blood moving. But the card advantage here, I think, is pretty real. Uh, The demons are all pretty real cards. They're almost all things you'd be pretty happy to cast. The fact that you can recur him and then play him again, you know, it's basically a two for one or maybe three for one, three for one, depending on what. No, two for one. Uh, Anyway, I I like Bloodspeaker. I don't think he's great, but I think he's pretty solid. He fills a spot in the curve and he sends, I like that he sends you on a mini quest to go Mm -hmm. find some demons. You mean in the drafting process, you pick this guy up and then you're going to be a little more favorable toward all the demons you see. Yeah, exactly. I'm honestly surprised that he's as big as he is. 3-2 for four (laughs) mana. Like with this effect in Kamigawa, I would expect him to be probably a 2-1 for four mana with the ability to find a demon. I really like this card. I don't think it's massively powerful, but I do like the tutor effect uh, and the way that it can help you find demons, which do tend to be a lot more powerful as creatures than most of what we're going to see in black. There are 11 demons in total in the whole block. I think five of them uh, appear in champions. So I like the idea of kind of having this there to pull them out. Yeah, not to cast too far ahead, but there are a couple really good ones. Uh, I'm particularly fond of Gut Wrencher Oni and Pain Racker Oni, which are five mana five fours mm-hmm. um, with some down with significant downsides, but who also want to have ogres around and their downside goes away without ogres. Anyway, I think this this thing pairs really really well with those two Oni uh, and allows Black to be a lot more kind of mid rangey aggressive than you would think. And we'll see a couple other cards that support that theme of like, huh, Black can do. Uh, more like its cards look weak on the surface, but I think a lot of them are deceptively powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think that'll be a running theme. I really like the art in this too, like how he's he's summoning this this big demon skull thing. But if you look closely, it is the the shape of the skull and the fact that it has three eyes, especially lines up perfectly with the way that the demons in this set are designed. I think they're all oni, which are supposed to have three eyes in the sort of Kamigawa canon. So he's summoning this big demon skull that does have a big kind of red eyeball in its forehead area. Kind of cool. And looking at it, I hadn't really noticed, but the skull kind of looks like it's attached to... Is that a body? It, it kind of looks like the skull is more fully formed, but its body is coming into you know form alongside it, which would make this demon just gigantic. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool piece of art. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, this guy also sees a decent amount of play in EDH. He's in 1,528 EDH decks, and he, he definitely seems fun with, you know, some of those iconic demons with enter the battlefield value, like Runescar Demon, who's a tutor himself, or Bells and Lock. Seems like a, just a really fun card. It makes mm. me want to... I don't really like EDH that much, but this makes me want to go build an EDH Demon Tribal deck. Yeah. How, how many of these do you have? I had him at a meh, but I'm now kind of like, is he a build around is he a playable I, I'm, I'm higher on him the more i talk about him and i kind of want two of them because uh, i just really want to have two of them and, and grind out an insane amount of value i said med just because you know there there is a good chance that you're going to get this and just not have demons uh, in which case he's yeah. pretty disappointing 
but we can tune that knob, right? We can yeah. we can turn up the number of demons to make this guy work. Yeah, we could. That would kind of make him a build around, but I feel like build around isn't quite the right rating either because the demons I think a lot of the demons are going to make it in whether or not Bloodspeaker shows up. So we're not really building around him. It's almost it's funny I called him a quest card, but I feel like in a way it's the reverse. Like you don't I feel like you don't pick up Bloodspeaker and then go, oh yeah, the demons are good too. It's more like you pick up a demon and go, oh, a blood speaker. Nice. You know what I mean? Like it's because if you don't get any demons, you, this guy, you really hope he doesn't end up having to make your deck, right? A four mana three two with no abilities yeah. uh, is pretty bad. All right. Maybe it is a one X then. I guess let's, let's start with one. And if we want to, you know, dial up that demon knob, we've got options. Turn in the demon knob at a meh. Yeah. Meh one. All right. We've got another ogre coming up here. Uh, bloodthirsty ogre. 2B for a 3-1 Ogre Warrior Shaman. He's got all his bases covered. He can tap to put a devotion counter on himself. And he can also tap to give target creature minus X, minus X until end of turn, where X is the number of devotion counters on him. But you can only use that ability if you control the demon. Uh, So basically, Bloodthirsty Ogre, you tap him over and over again to get him more and more devoted to his demon Oni Lords. Uh, And then if you've got a demon in play, he can you know, channel all of that devotion to kill your opponent's creatures. It's a cool idea. You know, I really like sort of the flavor of this card of his increasing devotion. And then once the demon Lord shows up, it all, you know, all of his uh, <laughs> demonic yeah, power can cool. be unleashed. It's a very slow process, even if you are able to get a demon out. And if you aren't able to do that, he's just a three mana three one. I have this guy, I see you have him at Instacut. I have him at a, a meh, uh, which, you know, admittedly isn't that much higher. But I think for me, I'm maybe more into a three mana, three one. I don't think it's an amazing rate, but I also don't think it's a totally embarrassing rate either. Weirdly, I think he he can play the aggressive role if your opponent somehow just doesn't have any uh, good creatures to block with. But I think it, actually he might be more of a defensive card that can trade up. There's about 94 CMC or higher creatures that this guy can kill. So I feel like in a weird way, he's kind of a defensive rattlesnake, almost like a death touch creature. And then if you happen to be able to play the mini game, then, I mean, if you get to the point he has two devotion counters on him and you have a demon, then he's he's nuts, right? Being able to just, it, it, he's like a Kabuto moth, right? He's like an even better Kabuto moth because he can kill things. Which is really good, right? I mean, that seems like really, as I say it like that, that seems really powerful to me. Yeah, I guess what bothers me about him is that, you know, it is more of a defensive card, especially with this whole devotion counter business. So I guess it just, it frustrates me that he only has this one toughness and just dies to everything. Uh, you know, he's not even yeah. like absorbing a 1-1 one, one spirit coming at your face. So he's there as sort of a three power threat if your opponent happens to have a creature out that that's big that's that big and attacking but you know if they just have a bunch of one ones he can't really do anything if you are trying to go for this devotion mini game before we get to the final rating what do you think of the art because i really like it yeah i think it's it's really cool it's sort of uh like low-key he looks there's a lot less blood in this art than you would expect for a card called bloodthirsty ogre <laughs> um, well he hasn't started gaining devotion counters yet. yeah he's just sort of he looks pretty chill in this picture <laughs> for an executioner ogre guy yeah, well he's not doing it yet because <laughs> the demon lord's not here there's a lot of kind of personality and sense of weight to it like the spear he's carrying or axe thing has a lot of weight his uh 
his pose is kind of heavy and like kind of looks like his movement would be kind of laborious, but strong. The art is by Thomas Baxa. He's got a very contrasty style. Mm -hmm. Like there's really deep blacks here and really bright whites, saturated oranges. And I, I honestly, a lot of his pieces don't do it for me. Like he has an Elvish pioneer art that I just think is kind of gross looking and garish and like gluttonous zombie. Like a lot of his pieces are like high contrast and gross. Um, but I really like it on this thing. I think it really helps it pop and, and looks a little bit unique. Yeah, the the art's doing it for me. I, I guess. Are you going to make me insta cut this? Can I can I have one of them just to see if I can pull it off? Yeah, yeah. We. I mean, I want this to work, so I guess we should have one and call it meh for now. Maybe we do call this one a build around because I think. Mm. So we're going to get to this point right where we're going to have gone through and raided all the cards, and we're going to have probably if I just had a ballpark. 1100 cards in the queue. That (laughs) sounds about right. Right. So we're going to do probably at that point, an initial round of culling and adjusting and massaging numbers before we start playtesting more earnestly. That's the point when we look, for example, to build around ratings and go like, okay, how many demons actually made the grade in the end? Is there only, are there only two demons likely to be in the queue? Well, then let's just cut him now. Yeah. Um, But if there's like five, then, you know, maybe he makes sense to try to keep a spot open for. Okay. Yeah. I like build around one of. All right. Build around one. Yeah. All right, let's go to Cranial Extraction. Three and a B for a sorcery, arcane. Name a non-land card. Search target player's graveyard, hand, and library for all cards with that name and exile them. Then that player shuffles. Uh, so <laughs> this is, I think this is pretty clearly a constructed card. I don't really see a place for this in cube, which ours isn't a singleton environment, but it's fairly singleton-ish. Um, and I don't think a four mana card that uh, at best duresses your opponent is really where you want to be i could kind of see it as like a weird hail mary pass against something like the dragons or something like if your opponent has a card you otherwise have no answer to but honestly i think if a card is disruptive enough to the environment that you would consider using this then the card itself that card needs to be reevaluated like i don't want to have to play this right as a weird hail mary pass yeah yeah that's that's a really good point i don't think we should be having cards in that are just specifically there to deal with card that is a problem. The problem card is the one that needs to be dealt with, not have more tools put in to deal with it. Speaking of gross, high contrasty art, oh, look at this thing. Do your best to describe it, I guess. Um, <laughs> I would say it's it's showing some kind of really muscle-bound demon spirit thing with a human face on it and a big, grinning, bloody mouth. Uh, sort of crouching over a mortal and sucking something out of his head, like maybe a thought, or it, it sort of looks mm-hmm. like a skull, but made out of gas. So maybe that's his soul or something being extracted from his cranium, but it's just really grody. Super, super grody. Um, I really don't like looking at it. I can't stop looking at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. Who was the guy who was the designer like the creature designer for Alien and other stuff. It starts with a G. Geiger. It's very like Geiger-esque mm. and, like, and like it's super, super gross and kind of body horror-ish and just, ugh. Yeah. Strangely, Gatherer loves this card. It, it has a 4.3 out of 5. And I think this is another one of those effects that just tickles people when they see it. And they, you know, they kind of go blind, I think. And they go, oh, wow, I could, I could use this to, to literally target anything. But, you know... Not really. I, I, I don't like this card. This is not, you know, there's, there are cards like this that have seen play in formats, you know, cards like Surgical Extraction or Extirpate, but those are one mana or zero mana. And I think the difference between one and zero mana, and I think at least one of those is, I think they're both instants and a four mana sorcery is a pretty, pretty huge difference. But hey, it's arcane. <laughs> you can splice onto it. 
That's true. That's true. Actually never liked effects like this. I, I just don't like a card that sort of, you know, even in constructed it, it requires you to sort of have this like meta knowledge of what cards your opponent is going to be running based on what you've seen of their deck so far. Yeah. And even more so in a cube, like if you don't know all of the cards that are in the cube or are likely to be in the cube, you're just sort of like looking at this as something that may or may not work. It, it, you know, it's 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 asking you to have this this knowledge of the game outside of just the cards that you and your opponent are playing with. Yeah, well, it works better, I think, in Constructed. You know, it works better in an environment where you're trying to play around specific things or like, you know, counter a specific type of effect. But yeah, I think in this context, it doesn't really work. Yeah. I think, I'm not totally sure, but I think this is the first time this effect appeared in black and actually maybe in the entire game. Really? So there was Jester's Cap and Grinning Totem before, and then a series of blue cards that would like let you remove any card from your opponent, just from your opponent's library, uh, like Denying Wind in, uh, is that Prophecy? Would exile seven cards from your opponent's library for nine mana. Extract from uh, Odyssey. But anyway, I think this is the when this effect moved into black. Uh, which is cool because that's now a you know a small but consistent part of Black's color pie, mm. and I like seeing it move out of blue. It's got one, another one of those examples where Wizards has gradually uh, moved the game from every cool effect being blue to a little more nuanced. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. But anyway, I think we cut this thing. Yeah, I agree. All right, next up we've got Cruel Deceiver, our favorite Deceiver cycle. Cruel Deceiver is one B for a two one Spirit. You can pay one colorless mana to look at the top card of your library, and you can pay two colorless mana to reveal that top card and if it's a land cruel deceiver basically gets death touch until end of turn you can only do that once a turn which of course you'd only want to do once a turn <laughs> really that really bugs me by the way just aesthetically that that annoys me greatly yeah, well it's it's got to match up with the other wonderful deceivers yeah so this is the third card of our favorite cycle of spirits in the set the deceivers they all have this sort of weird you know, what's supposed to be kind of a, a bluffing mini game, at least according to Mark Rosewater, uh-huh. of, you know, making your opponent guess, oh, like, what's the top card of your library? Are you going to be able to give this death touch this turn? They just don't know. You know what this mini game reminds me of? What? The children's quote unquote card game war, where you just reveal the top card of a deck to see who gets the bigger card. That's what these are like. Oh, but Austin, you can pay They're three like the mana. the least fun card game. You can pay three mana to know whether you're going to win the next round of war or at least get death touch. I, I wanted to go a little deep on this guy just out of hatred. So there are, I believe, 13 one drops in magic with unconditional death touch and a further 10 or 15 or something that can gain death touch. There are 26 two drops with unconditional death touch. And then, you know, a couple dozen that can get it. And and then there's Cruel Deceiver. That's like a two mana, two one that lets you pay three mana to sometimes have death touch. I think what really bothers me about all of the Deceiver effects is not just that you're paying three mana for a possibility, but it's a possibility that you cannot exercise any control over. You know, these abilities don't let you look at the top card and then get rid of it if it's not the land that you want to trigger the ability, you just look at it and yeah. it doesn't it doesn't give you any way to actually control that probability, which I think takes all the fun potential out of it. That's a great point. Uh, as I'm, I, I, I said, I went way too deep on this guy and I've, I have further proof, which is um, some trivia you, uh, you can all use is that for about two years, Cruel Deceiver was errated by wizards to actually get death touch. Like if you read the card, 
It doesn't have death touch. It has whenever this deals damage to a creature, destroy that creature. So it's a triggered ability. And so when death touch first became a thing in future sight, it was printed as a triggered ability. And then they realized that created all kinds of weird play problems and confusion. So it would move to a static ability, at which point this was errated back. So I want you all to use this trivia to just dazzle your friends at cocktail parties, impress your date, you know, take take this away and, and really ponder it. I think my wife's going to be pretty thrilled to hear about this. Oh, I should go tell tell my wife right now. It's a good call. What do you think of this guy? I, I think he's a little bit better than the others just being a two mana, two one spirit. You know, that's actually what makes me hate him most is that <laughs> I, I hate trap cards. Like, I, I think I've said this a few times. I don't like cards that you read it and they kind of do something very different from what they seem to do on the surface. And I think this guy's a classic example. If you read him and it's like, this is terrible, I hate it. But if you just read him as a two mana, two one spirit that can get you soul shift value and then has an occasional ability that might matter sometimes, I suspect he's tolerable, but I still, I'm reluctant to tolerate him because I just, I, I don't like the confusion that creates in the drafter and the like gotcha moment for the, you know, players who are new and don't understand this like weird 5d chess thing they're supposed to do well he's deceiving you so of course you don't like it you've really got me on that that's one. his whole job <laughs> okay is this is this the one deceiver we include in the cube just as a sop to the deceiver fan oh i i, I don't want to go quite that far oh i don't want to take it so far that he actually makes it in <laughs> how, how many other two drop black spirits do we have now that's a good question well of course we got our buddy ashenskin zubera mm-hmm. We have Wicked Akuba coming up late in next episode, which is uh, very good. And we have Death Nail Kami, which is not very good. So one of basically three semi-playable black spirit, two drop spirits. Hmm. I feel like I'd rather just use that space for Zuberas, right? If we just want to dial up and down the amount of random black two drops, wouldn't you rather have more Ashen skins? I mean, I guess you can't have seven Ashen skins. That just gets bizarre. I mean, I always want more Zuberas. Yes. Yeah, I I feel like we're not gonna be we're not gonna be upset if we finish this whole block and then realize that all the deceivers are out of it. I don't think we're gonna be too sad about that. Okay, we will not be deceived. No. Instacut. Get him out. Let's talk about Cursed Ronin. Three and a B for a one-one human samurai with Bushido one. And as a reminder, Bushido is when this blocks or becomes blocked, it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And then black, Cursed Ronin gets plus one, plus one until end of turn, aka the shade ability. So we got a four mana, one, one, Bushido one, and it's a shade. I am pretty high on this guy. I think he has the general problem that Bushido cards have and that shade cards have. They don't read as impressive as they play. He's basically a four mana, two, two, which is not terrible for a shade uh, because that ability is deceptively powerful. You know, you cast him on turn four. The next turn, he swings in, assuming you still have four mana and they're all black. He swings in as basically a 5-5 that goes to a 6-6 if blocked. That's pretty good on turn four or five in Kamigawa. Like, I think I think this thing is actually pretty good and has some potential to get out of hand and, and just be a solid role player the rest of the time. Yeah, I think he's he's solid and sort of the, the first card we're seeing of what I think is going to become a pretty strong mono black archetype in the cube. Because you do need to have like all black mana to get maximum value out of this guy. But I, I think that's a really good point that pretty much all the shades, and I think the typical shade ratio is with like three mana for a one one, right? That yep, that's your OG alpha frozen shade, or maybe frozen shade is a zero one. But yeah, it's basically three mana yeah. uh for a, a X one is your classic rate. Yeah, so he's you know, a li- like a little bit 
bigger than that. I, I think you make a good point that they look they look pretty sad stat wise, but can end up really running away with a game if they're not dealt with. Yeah, I think the one problem maybe with for shades in this block is it's very slow. And so I think you're a little less likely to end up sort of empty handed and needing a place to dump mana than you might be in other set. Yeah, that's a good point. The flip side is, you know, you, you can kind of just, you know, leave up the mana and not play out your cards and you're sort of getting card advantage that way. You know what I mean? If he's overperforming on the board and you're just starting to amass value in your hand. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of the art? Because I think it is badass. Yeah, it's it is super cool. I, he's well. First off, he's a samurai in black, which is pretty cool. One of only six. Yeah, already cool. Six samurai in black in the whole block. He's standing with a big kind of bandit sword in this really tattered, like worn down armor. Uh, standing in the foreground of these swamps, there's a ruined house in the background, and sort of these dark clouds all around him. And it looks like he's just slain a Kitsune, and he looks pretty angry and evil. Yeah, he almost looks like a zombie, or you know, he almost looks undead. And the fact that he's human to me makes him even kind of scarier in a way, because he he's so far gone from his humanity that he doesn't even look human anymore. Yeah, really well composed, really well realized, just a really cool piece. Yeah, good job, Carl Critchlow. Yes, I had this at like a two X man, but I think it, to me it's starting to feel more like a three X as I think about it. I feel like he just. He does a lot of what you need him to do, and he's just a solid role player. Going big on the Ronin. I felt like he was playable rather than Matt, huh. but I also said 2x instead of 3x, and I feel like maybe... I'm not sure how to feel about a 4-mana creature, how many copies of that we want to have. Yeah, it's true. It's a more competitive number, I think, and I still think on balance, in a lot of cases, you're going to rather have a spirit at that same cost in black, you know, because Soul Shift is such a big part of that color's identity. Right, or something that, you know, just something that comes in a little bit bigger by default than this guy. Yeah, maybe we start him at a two, and if we're like, we just need another kind of space-filling four-drop, he he can move up in the world. I doubt he gets cut completely, though. I think he's pretty solid. I think so, too. Is he a playable then? That's sounding more like a playable than a man to me. Yeah, I let's go with playable. All right, next up, we've got Dance of Shadows. 3 BB for a sorcery arcane. Creatures you control get plus one, plus O, and gain fear until end of turn. So if you have never played a game of magic uh, that has fear in it, because it's a mechanic that's been retired for over a decade now, fear was an evasion ability that has been around since alpha. It was keyworded as fear back in Onslaught, uh, replaced with (laughs) Intimidate in 2010, and then that was obsolete in 2015. So there's been a sort of a whole saga of fear. Basically what it does is a creature with fear can only be blocked by a black creature or artifact creature. So against a non-black deck, Dance of Shadows essentially makes all of your creatures unblockable. So there's some obvious potential here as a finisher, assuming that your opponent is not in black and doesn't have any artifact creatures, which they probably won't in this set. But to me, this just feels like a really unfun effect to have in the cube. I'm not a fan of fear. I'm not really a fan of protection either. You know, the problem is you can't, particularly in limited, you know, there's nothing you can do to play around the upside downside here. Like if your opponent, particularly as the person casting Dance of Shadows, like if your opponent is in black, you can't play Dance of Shadows. Yeah. If your opponent isn't in black, 
there's very little they can do to interact or try to beat you or try to play around it, except just beat you before you can cast Dance of Shadows. Like it's just not a, it's not a card that leads to very fun play patterns. You know, like all of these kind of color oriented mechanics that we've been talking about that either, you know, work kind of too well or just not at all. The tipping point of whether that, which way that effect is going to go is completely out of your hands. You know, you don't have any way to know or control for whether your opponent is going to be in a certain color in the first game of a match. Maybe by second or third game, you're able to decide whether to put Dance of Shadows in there. But when you're first playing against someone, you don't know what color they're going to be in. Like, there's no way for you to, you know, figure out whether this card should be in. Worse, uh, in this case, for the opponent, too, because, uh, you know, an individual creature with fear, you can sort of play around, right? You can prioritize removal for it. You know, you can... You can do things to to give yourself some agency, but this this one there's really except for a counterspell, I suppose there's nothing your opponent can do to like affect affect the outcome of that. Which which sort of means you're you're both in a situation where you can't you know you have no agency over what color they're in, and then if they happen to be in the wrong one from their perspective, and all your creatures become unblockable, then there's nothing they can do. Yeah, this is also another example of one of the funny things. Black shares with blue this set that almost all of its cards, a lot of its cards read worse than they are. You know, you read this and you go five mana to give thing plus one plus O and fear. Like that doesn't read like much and it's kind of game ending. And I I think in this case, the mana cost actually doesn't matter because the point at which you're casting this is like, I need to finish the game out. And so it could cost three or it could cost five or it could cost six. And I don't think it really matters what it costs. Mm. Um, but I feel like you see that with a lot of them. Like Cursed Ronin is like that. The Sore Tommy and Blue were like that. There's a lot yeah. of cards in this set that challenge your card evaluation abilities or that just don't read don't read the way they play. They're, they're certainly challenging our card evaluation abilities. Yeah, no joke. I, I also believe this has the most disgusting art in the set and some of the most disgusting in the history of magic. It's like these this pair of intestine men advancing through a swamp it's just like super gross to me well it's it's one intestine man and then shadows of the intestine man they're doing the dance yeah. but yeah if you look closely you can see that he's he's trudging through this water and there's blood is pooling around him in the water because he's just a big pile of intestines oh super gross i, I kind of like it what uh what is it that you like? I mean, I, I, I like, I like scary things and horror movies a lot more than you do. I think that's fair to say. And yeah, I don't know. There's just something kind of cool and disgusting in a cool, well-executed way. <laughs> I have this playable because I think it is actually pretty good, but I think I'm looking at your Instacut and I think for play design reasons, you're right. I don't think this is really an effect I want running around. It's just not very fun. Yeah. I said Instacut, not because I think it's weak, but because I just don't, want it to be in the cube like i don't want this effect games in the cube if that means i don't have to look at these intestine men after i scroll past this row of the spreadsheet i'm i'm fine with that outcome yeah you'll never have to look at them again unless you scroll back up all right should we cut it let's cut it okay let's go to death curse ogre cool name death curse ogre is five and a b for a three three yes ogre warrior when death curse ogre dies each player loses three life. Oh boy. Um, there, there's a number of solid candidates in this uh, set for one worst card in the set, but I think this might be the worst, not because it's the most completely unplayable. You know, it's not one with nothing, but it's just such an insult. You know, a six mana, three, three, and then when it dies, it doesn't even, 
you you have to lose the life too so you can't even kind of potentially threaten your opponent with it or make a new rattlesnake like i really loathe loathe this card it's kind of insulting you know one of one of these cards that just it it feels like it was never meant to be played under any circumstances. They knew that when they were designing it, but just to to be paying three extra mana for a completely symmetrical ability that could be just as bad for you, if not worse, than it is for your opponent. It's likely to be worse, yeah. right? Because the fact that this is a six drop implies that you're playing the slower, grindier game, in which case you're often kind of a little behind on life. So he, you know what I mean? Like he, he's, yeah, ugh. Yeah, it like it should either be if if he's going to be overcosted, you know, give him an ability that just hurts your opponent, or make him undercosted and have him hurt you, which I feel like fits more into yeah. the you know kind of ogre oni theme. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Like if he'd been a three mana three three or a three mana four two or something that just bolts you, yeah, that would be that would be more fun and interesting. Yeah, and that would make him kind of more like his demon lords, right? Because he is an ogre. Yeah, or even. Even hurt both of you, but on a lower mana cost so that he fits into an aggressive deck that can take advantage of that kind of symmetrical damage. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, would you'd ever ever want to play him on any kind of curve? Uh, there's a couple gatherer commenters who call this the Chimney Imp of Kamigawa. For anyone who's not <laughs> aware, Chimney Imp is one of the most iconically terrible cards in the history of magic. And I think that's about right. This this guy is not much better than Chimney Imp. Yeah, just just painful. I do like uh, the flavor text. It tells you a little bit more of the sort of Oni ogre backstory. It says, After their worship of Oni began, only a few of Kamigawa's ogres remained in the bitter cold of the Tendo Peaks. Most were drawn to the darkness of Takenuma, which is the, you know, swampy part of the plane. So just kind of a cool little, little storytelling. The ogres started out as you know, mountain dwellers, and we are going to see some ogres in red, but they started worshiping demons, and then they got sort of pulled down from the mountains into the darkness. Never a good idea, Connor. The demons seem like they're going to give you so much power, but then in the end, they turn you into a six mana three. <laughs> that makes that makes everybody <laughs> lose life. Yeah. Oh. Okay, let's cut him. All right, this next one is definitely not an insta-cut. Devouring Greed. Yeah. 2BB for a sorcery arcane. As an additional cost to play Devouring Greed, you may sacrifice any number of spirits. Target player loses two life plus two life for each spirit sacrificed this way. You gain that much life. So we talked about this card, of course, in the Zubera special as the centerpiece of that one turn kill combo. But even without any Zuberas, I think this is at least a decent card, if not outright powerful especially if you manage to get into either a mono black or maybe a mono or kind of a black green spirit soul shift type deck. I think this is really strong. The rate here is genuinely great. Like I think it's easy for me at least to read this card as, you know, kind of the one turn kill scenario. You read it and go, okay, I need to get five or six or seven spirits out before this does a thing. But actually sacking like one to two spirits that are not very valuable and then have soul shift is also fine. You know, like if you sack two spirits, that's a six point life swing and you might get a bunch of soul shift triggers and then be able to cast one of them, you know, something else back. Like this is a really, I think it's a solid card that scales, scales from a kind of like catch you up or grind out some value scenario all the way to like, oh, you thought we were stalled. Well, now you're dead. Yeah. And there really aren't that many cards in this whole block, honestly, that have the kind of flexibility that this card does. Like something that we've talked about a little bit in white and blue is that there are a lot more cards in modern magic that 
are just kind of always good one way or another, or they're always, you know, yeah. decent. They're going to do something for you. And there are a lot of cards in this set and in this era of magic that sometimes will do basically nothing for you, uh, like our Bloodthirsty Ogre a little while ago. And this is one of the rare cards, I think, in this set that has it, it's scalable. You know, it, it gives you options of when to play it, how much power you're trying to get out of it. Uh, whether you need it to just kind of gain some life and keep yourself in the game or to finish your opponent off or to just get them low enough that you can do something else. It's pretty wild to me that this was printed at common. Like we weren't playing limited back then, but this seems like a really kind of strong and disruptive effect to be at common. It feels much more like an uncommon. Yeah. It's also weird to see this in Dance of Shadows sitting in the same set because I feel like they basically fill the same role of a game ending card for the spirit deck. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, how many of these do you want in the cube? I think we only need one of either Dance of Shadows or Devouring Greed. Of course, it's going to be Devouring Greed, and I think we want two of them. Yeah, two seems fine. I can't imagine you want too many. You know, I, like I think this is, it, it does have a little bit of the Dance of Shadows problem of like, uh, oops, you're, oops, I'm dead, right? Yeah. So there's a little bit of feel bad. I'm okay tolerating that here because I think it's a, it's a feel bad your opponent can interact with a little bit more. They can, you know, chip away at your spirits. They can know that it, I don't know. I, I feel less hate towards it than I do uh, Dance of Shadows. Somehow it feels better for your opponent to randomly combo off with this because it feels like a combo. Whereas right. Dance of Shadows, because they're attacking, feels like you got outplayed. It's like, like one of those weird magic psychology moments of they're basically the same thing. Yeah. Somehow this doesn't feel as bad to me. I think part of it for me is that it has to be spirits that are sacrificed to this card. So yeah. it is kind of, you know, if you choose to pick up Devouring Greed in the draft, you do need to make an extra effort to focus on getting enough spirits to make this worth playing. Right, your opponent, you had to commit to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Dance of Shadows, you know, it's going to buff any creatures you have. I, like, they don't even need to be, they don't need to be spirits, they don't even need to be black creatures, just any creature you have uh, is going to get affected by Dance of Shadows. But Devouring Greed, you need to spend some time to really set it up. And that does give your opponent an opportunity to you know, at least theoretically say like, wait a second, this this guy is playing mono black. He's putting out a whole bunch of spirits and trying to get me to 10 life. Plus, of course, uh, it supports the Zubera deck. So, you know, in a way, we don't even have discretion about including this. Uh, it just has to go in. So maybe I said playable, but I think, yeah, it does need to be auto include. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a scenario where we want to cut this thing. All right. Uh, two of them? Yeah, I think two is a good place to start. All right. Next up, we have Distress. Distress is BB for a sorcery. Target player reveals his or her hand. You choose a non-land card from it. That player discards that card. I don't like this card. I've never liked this card. I don't like that the art is full of eyeballs. That might be my primary objection. Um, I don't really like paying two mana, let alone two black, like double black designated mana for a duress effect. I don't like that it's not arcane. Uh, I don't like that the art is very spirity but the flavor text uh, is not spirity and it's not arcane. I just, I don't like this card. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for this card a little bit. It's not quite duress because you can make them discard anything but a land. So it can target a creature, which duress can't. Right, right, right. For one more mana. And we, we discussed this with Dance of Shadows, but I don't mind this grody art. It's, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's not like Dance of Shadows level of distressing for me, but it's also not. Doesn't it bug you, though, that it looks like such an arcane spell? That does bother And me. yet it's not. Like, shouldn't this be arcane for play reasons? It feels like the the elements of this card didn't quite all come together. Like, the art 
these look like some kind of gross commie is wrapping its tendrils around this poor distressed man. But that doesn't line up with the fact that it's not arcane. That doesn't really line up with the flavor text about sacrificing only about like ogres sacrificing humans. Yeah, it's just kind of jumbled a little bit. I can see why you're bothered by it. I don't think it's too terrible, though, is it? I don't think it's too terrible. I do think like the difference between one and two mana for these effects is really large. I feel like there's a pretty good chance that by the time this comes online, you know, a lot of its best targets are already have already been cast, and that spooks me a little bit. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, these play these are very proactive plays. These duress effects, uh, and so I tend to like them best when they can slot in with some either either be played on turn one, find the best thing out of a large suite of options, or when they can, you know, be cast later in the game, also for one mana, and just tack on, you know, fill a little bit of extra space in your mana curve so that you're using all your mana each turn. And I feel like this doesn't really mm-hmm. do that. I, I might be too harsh on it. I mean, there are two mana effects like this that are playable, like Agonizing Remorse, but I, I'm just not, I, I, I struggle to see this being an impressive card. Yeah, I don't think it's going to, you know, blow the doors open, but I, I think I'm a little bit more favorable to it because i'm envisioning this kind of mono black archetype and we are going to see some other cards that do require you know like cursed ronin that we looked at really needs to be in a mono black deck to shine um so i'm not as worried about the double designated yeah i mean i'm fine with trialing um one or maybe two of them i I mean i think my instacut here is a bit harsh but i don't i i I doubt this is going to feel that great i feel like it's going to clog up your hand in a lot of games and just not be super impressive. Although the fact that this can hit a creature is uh, is highly relevant. Yeah. Except for that many of the creatures, and there's a lot of soul shift going on. There's a lot of recursion going on. So going to the graveyard. If this exiled, this would be, I think, quite great. I think with discard, it's a little less good. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, should we try one of them or... Because there is, there is plenty of discard in black in this set, and we don't need to have all of it. Well, you're our discard fan. Which what discard speaks to you more strongly? Like, does this card speak to you? I feel like we should let you have it in that case. I mean, it doesn't speak to me as loudly as some of the other discard effects that we're going to be seeing later on. This may be the only one that gives you that duress ability of seeing your opponent's hand and well, except he who hungers. But that's a much more niche and specialized effect. I'm I'm fine if we if you want to put one or maybe even two of them in. I'm totally fine with that. I feel like let's let's try one, and I I'm sort of I'm sort of wondering if it's going to end up just being you know a little useless, something that you never end up picking. But let's try it. Okay, sounds good. Before before we move on, I want to read the flavor text because I'm not a huge fan of it. Today I asked Master Dosan what the ogre mages did with the humans they sacrificed. He gave me a hard look and said to think no more on the matter. Meditation Journal of Young Budoka. I, I'm not a huge fan of that because uh, the art doesn't really look ogre And also to me, discard doesn't really feel like something's being sacrificed or killed. Like there's just a disjointedness um, there that uh, it, it is slightly irritating. Like I think discard is, is typically more about sanity, right? And, and kind of mental state than it is about death. Right. That's what the art in this card is showing too. Yeah, sort of the whole, like all the elements of this aren't really coming together very well. Yeah, this was reprinted with the same art in 10th edition and with, I think, much more usable flavor text. They say the eyes are the windows to the soul. I like to break windows and take what's inside. Braids, Dimension Summoner. That's pretty good. Uh, I like that, A, because it fits really well, and B, it quotes braids, which is great. I love braids. 
Yeah, that's a lot better than this distress. Uh, this has also been reprinted one more time in M12. Still some eyeball themed uh, art, and it is really, really <laughs> disturbing. I'm not even going to try to describe it. Just look it up. It's uh, quite a piece. All right. A lot of distressing distress art. Uh, let's move on to a uh, another kind of distressing looking card, mm-hmm. depending on how you feel about it. Uh, Gibbering Kami, 3B for a 2-2 spirit with flying and soul shift 3. And that's it. Nice and simple. I think this is uh, a really solid card and kind of a, I think will end up being a core piece of the black or black green or maybe black white spirit deck. Yeah, I think he's a total solid role player. I'm pretty high on him. I, I think he's first kind of, he's a cutie patootie. He's a little bit cute um, for a zombie spirit thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's gibbering. Depending how you look at but it. But yeah, I think he does everything you want him to do. Uh, he's right in the middle of the curve. Uh, so he can be recurred by several things above him in the um, Soul Shift Cascade, like uh, Forked Branch Garami, um, for example. Uh, and then he also gets the cheaper spirits back uh, himself. I think four mana 2-2 two, two Flyer is, it's not an amazing rate, but it's not an embarrassing rate either. I think it's a totally solid cost. I think it's completely reasonable within the creature meta of this block. And yeah, the Soul Shift just kind of glues everything together in that spirit deck. Yeah, and I think uh, he also does a nice job just, you know, chipping in for damage, yeah. annoying your opponent. Yeah, how many do you think? I, I said three, and I had him at playable, which I, playable we often treat as kind of a high rating. I think in this case, I don't mean that he's great. I just mean he's solid, and I don't see any uh, scenario where this card gets cut. Yeah, yeah, I, I said exactly the same, three of them, and playable for basically the same reason. Like, he's not, you know, he's not mind-blowing, but... I think he's always going to have a place. All right, let's let the little fellow gibber gibber his way into the cube. Gibber on in here. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Gut Wrencher Oni. 3BB for a 5-4 Demon Spirit with Trample. Low! At the beginning of your upkeep, discard a card if you don't control an ogre. I think even with that downside, I think this is a proper powerful big boy like a 5-4 trampler for five is just off the charts on rate in this set and while it comes with the downside i think the downside here is pretty tolerable even if you end up having to discard a couple cards and you get hellbent hellbent getting in there with a 5-4 trampler that is going to trade with all you know i don't know what 70 percent of the card uh creatures in the block uh like this is a big thing it's usually going to one for one in a lot of cases so you may never even need to discard i don't know i just think this is great yeah, I think especially, you know, being in black where you're probably going to have some more soul shift and some more graveyard interaction type effects, like discarding a card is not that bad. Like it's not a high price to pay for a 5-4 trampler. Yeah, because you're just, you know, I mean, it's like a four, it's literally a four turn clock, right? Your opponent either has to put something in front of this or they die uh, very quickly. I was looking into, you know, how many tramplers there are actually in the whole block and there are only seven of them. Like seven creatures that have trample. Wow, really? In the whole block, there's only seven? The whole block. Only seven creatures have trample by default. Wow. This is the only one in black. So to have that effect and to have it on a 5-4 for five mana, I, I think I'd be willing to pay uh, a higher you know, sacrifice cost to keep this Oni around. Yeah, and the other thing is it's not particularly unreasonable to like have an ogre out, you know, there's a couple decent yeah. ogres that come in lower on the mana curve. So I think in a lot of cases, you know, for example, we go back to, you know, my buddy and your buddy, Bloodspeaker, you know, you play Bloodspeaker on four, you get Gut Wrencher Oni, 
I don't know. I'm pretty happy with, with that sequence. And then you recast the blood speaker for just a little bit more pressure. Like that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Really solid card. Also gut wrencher is just a great name. <laughs> like I love the sort of the ambiguity here. Is he, is he gut wrenching because he's causing so much misery for people? Is he literally mm. wrenching out people's guts? Ew. Uh, we just, we don't know. And it looks like he could be doing both. We're, we're seeing a gross, gross love inside of you here. We really are. I mean, we're seeing a lot of grossness in, yeah. in the art so far. Are we like 12 for 12 on gross here? Have there been any non-gross uh, cards? I guess Bloodspeaker isn't that gross, but I think apart yeah. from that and, and the Zubera, they've all been pretty gross. Yeah, there's, there is a lot of, lot of gross cards, a lot of guts, so good stuff. I like his necklace. It's like kind of like a hippie bead necklace. Yeah. He's got a softer, more spiritual side to him, I guess. Yeah, you know, he's got the long sort of white hair it looks like uh-huh. another uh-huh. another chill dude yeah he's just another kind of surfer surfer guy down there <laughs> he the does gotta have surfer vibes <laughs> yeah he's got a surfer vibe yeah he kind of you know i i live in la you go to the beach sometimes <laughs> like muscle beach or something yeah and sometimes you see guys like this you know kind of on the on the other side long yep. hair muscle bound very very tan beaded necklace Beat a necklace. He's checking all the boxes. Two foot tall, two foot long horns. Uh huh. Third eye in the forehead. You know the way he's clutching his hands. Like you could pretty easily alter a surfboard in this art. Like he kind of looks like he's cradling a surfboard. He <laughs> I does. Want he, to do that. He he kind of looks like his board just broke, and he's oh, he's mourning that'd be it. Such a bummer. What a gut wrencher that what would be. What a bummer, dude. <laughs> all right, we yeah we gotta have this guy. Yeah. Yeah. He also makes me want to, you know, the block after this had Hellbent as a signature Rakdos mechanic, a pretty terrible Rakdos mechanic, to be honest. But like, this makes me want to go build a casual 60 card deck that's got Rakdos cards and Gut Wrencheroni and, you know, Bloodspeaker. Just, it's just a card that seems fun to play with. Yeah. Well, I think we'll have fun with, with this guy, this dude. Yeah. How many, how many Gut Wrencheronis go in? He feels kind of, uh, he feels too powerful to me to have more than maybe one or two of them. Plus he's a five drop. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I said one, I think you just, you don't want to have two of these guys running around. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's start him at one. All right. Do you, I, I have him as an auto include. I just can't imagine cutting this. Do you, do you feel differently? Um, I mean, I, I started out as playable, uh, but I think you're right that he's an auto include. I think he's gonna, he's gonna stick around. All right. Next up, we've got He Who Hungers, 4B for 3-2 Legendary Spirit with Flying. Has this ability, pay one colorless mana and sack a spirit. Target opponent reveals their hand. You choose a card from it, and they discard that card. Uh, Play this only anytime you could play a sorcery. And he comes with Soul Shift 4. Amazing name for this card, He Who Hungers. Pretty awesome art. Pretty cool you know, recurring discard effect that you can trigger. Three, two flyer, soul shift four. Like he's, he's checking all the boxes for me. Uh, I think this card is just great. It's notable that it doesn't say non-land card. It just says choose a card. So, I mean, you can really strip, strip your opponent out of whatever resource they're most constrained on at the time uh, that he who hungers heads to the uh, buffet. (laughs) And he's hungry. (laughs) <laughs> he is hungry. Uh, speaking of hungry, I love the art here. It's like this kind of, he's kind of a simultaneously a rib cage and a maw sort of mm-hmm. creeping across the swamps. And he's got the, there's like these blue spirits inside the rib cage maw. And it's kind of hard to tell, like, 
Is he consuming them? Is he incubating them? You know, is he protecting them? Like it's really ambiguous and spooky, but not in a like, oh, this is gory and gross, just like in a kind of an understated way I really love. It's menacing. Yeah, he just he creates this impression of just sort of this this mindless force, just constantly, you know, sweeping across the swamps, devouring anything in his way. It's kind of funny that, you know, this this has like an actual, you know, gendered pronoun in it, he who hungers <laughs> such yeah. but it's basically a floating <laughs> ribcage. The other thing with the art here is this is by Kev Walker, who's, you know, one of the all-time great magic artists. He's done hundreds and hundreds of pieces. I feel like I kind of had Kev Walker pigeonholed in my head as the artist for like Wrath of God and Damnation, you know, really talented, but leaning towards kind of photorealism and maybe mm-hmm. less imaginative on the uh, kind of fantastical creature composition side. But uh, this piece has absolutely proven me wrong. I think this is just a really, really strong piece that's still very distinctively Kev Walker. It's still got some of that photorealism to it, but it's also got a painterly quality. I don't know, just just a really strong piece. I'm glad he has flying, but it bothers me that he has flying because he's clearly like two feet above the ground. <laughs> it's, it's the opposite of the problem with every other spirit in the deck in the set that are clearly flying. It really is. But don't have flying. <laughs> in this case, he's not flying and he has flying. It's, it's crazy making. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess if he wants to go eat some birds, he can. He's got He's got options. That's true. Yeah, he's he's got some gravitational too. He's got some lift. I think that this is I called this an auto include because I I love the flavor of it so much. I really like sort of how many different things there are to think about on this card that it's, you know, it's a 3-2 flyer so it's getting in for damage you know, on its own. You've got this sack of spirit effect, you know, to force your opponent to discard anything for just one mana. You can do that any number of times per turn if you have enough spirits. And he's got this soul shift just sort of like stuck on there at the beginning. No explainer text or anything like that. Just soul shift four right at the bottom uh, as like an extra little kicker to make you pay more attention to him. I, I don't think his power level is that this high, but he reminds me of a more modern magic card, honestly. Just the amount of complexity in the design and also the number of different sort of modes it shows up in and the way right. it kind of guarantees you value. It, it feels different than a lot of other Kamigawa cards, which largely do like a thing. And yeah, you're right. right. Hugh Hungers is kind of, he can be a little bit aggressive if you need him to. He can hold back and play defense. He can strip your opponent's hand. He can create some value. He's a, he's a bit of a Swiss army knife. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a rare thing in this block. EDH rec uh, report. Poor He Who Hungers is commanding a mere 21 decks on EDH rec, which I think is a crime. I think he's far too cool to be. Co- I mean, I kind of see why it's, like the essence of a kind of 1v1 card. This is why I'm not a huge fan of Commander. <laughs> These cards like this are why. Like this card is so cool and yet it just doesn't have a place in that format. Because uh, yeah. anything that is 1v1-y just doesn't have, can't can't make it on rate. All right. I, I'm fine with your auto-include. I had him at playable just because I think on power level, I don't think this is unbelievably strong. I mean, it's this thing isn't a dragon, but I do think it's it's very good and I wouldn't want to cut it. So I'm fine going to auto-include. Yeah. And I, I think I would always always be happy to have this show up in in a deck if I'm in black. I think he's got to stay. All right, let's move on and talk about Hideous Laughter. 2BB for an instant arcane. All creatures get minus two, minus two until end of turn. And you can splice it onto arcane for 3BB. And I think this is our first splice card of this episode. So splice, as a reminder, is as you cast an arcane spell, you may reveal this card from your hand and pay its splice cost. If you do, add this card's effects to that spell. I think this card is really good. 
This is a lot closer to a Wrath of God than it might read. There are 197 creatures in the block that have two or less toughness out of 336 creatures total. So that's basically 60% of all the creatures in the block die to this thing. And it's repeatable. And it's an instant. Like that is a really uh, kind of bonkers combination of abilities that seems a little bit obnoxious. But in a way, I'm here for it. It's kind of a land destruction type obnoxiousness of like, haha, I warped my deck around this and uh, now you're going to be miserable. I'm, I like that. Yeah, it's it seems really oppressive. You know, I also appreciate that it it's sort of a selective wrath effect. It, it lets you maybe build your deck in a way where you're going to focus more on having big creatures that survive hideous laughter and, you know, wiping your opponent's board of small samurai. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It sort of pushes you in a certain deck building direction as well, where maybe you're a little bit more focused on getting gut wrencher Oni and some bigger creatures out there that are going to survive this. It's also arcane by itself. So you can splice other things onto it. Well, speaking of that, the other thing kind of deck warping direction it makes me think of is like, this feels a little bit like it could fit into a damp and thoughty kind of deck. Mm. You know, another way to kind of slow mm-hmm. the game down and stall out until you get your weird damp and thought wind condition off. Um, I know that deck deck is centered in blue white but i I can see maybe a space for this yeah yeah it would certainly buy you more time a commenter on a previous uh episode tap tap also pointed out this is a sneaky way you can activate a bunch of zubera triggers all the zubera die to this and so there you go um, this is like another way you can do the zuberas well all the all the real zuberas or two from saviors would survive hideous Uh, we don't we don't we don't talk about (laughs) we don't talk about them no we've talked about them for the last time last episode yeah so I think this is definitely playable. I don't want to call it auto-include because I wonder if there might be a point at which we decide that this is maybe too oppressive. Yeah, but I like I like that kind of oppression, Connor. This is a fun kind of oppression for the player casting it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we agree on playable for now? Uh, we agree on playable. I don't think we agree on quantity. I kind of want like two of these in because I kind of want the ability for someone to pick up a couple and just really go hard and uh, commit. Hmm. Yeah, I said one copy because, and and again, this kind of comes back to what we were discussing with Bethal. It kind of depends how much removal Black has in total. Like if if the two copies of Hideous Laughter are a larger proportion of the total removal that we have, then I'm maybe okay with it. But if we also give Black a bunch of targeted removal, then I don't know about having two copies of this on top of all of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, to me, it makes me wonder, like, are we okay with kind of mono Black removal or Black removal dot deck? And I think I'm kind of okay with that. That feels like it fits in with the spirit of the time. Let's try two of them and see how it goes. Okay, two it is. Okay, next up, Honden of Night's Reach. I'm excited, our Black Honden here. 3B for a legendary enchantment shrine. At the beginning of your upkeep, target opponent discards a card for each shrine you control. So, of course, this is the same effect that appears on all Honden. It you know counts the number of shrines that you have. Uh, you can only have one in each color because they're all legendary. And then the effect of each Honden is amplified based on how many shrines you've got out there. This one, I think, is probably the worst of all the shrines. It's it's such a slow way to make your opponent discard anything. Four mana for a delayed discard uh, of one card. 
assuming you don't have any other shrines out, is a very, very slow way to make your opponent discard cards. Yeah, the first discard happens on basically on turn five of your turn. Right, because it doesn't trigger right away when you play it. It happens on the upkeep, so you've got to wait for your next turn to get any kind of value out of this. I could sort of see a situation where if it's a really grindy game and your opponent doesn't have any answer to the Honden, then it you know is maybe forcing them to... They're down to one card in hand and you're sort of forcing them to play cards at suboptimal times or just lose a card if they're not able to play it for whatever reason. I don't know how likely that is or even how valuable that is if they're just going to be top decking and playing cards anyway. Yeah, I don't know if this is the worst of the shrines. That might be the white one. It's probably the white one. But for me, it's maybe my least favorite. I don't know. I guess I just I guess I just hate discard. No, I think you're right. The four mana is just a little bit too late to consistently matter. Although, you know, this can if you have like this and another shrine, you're pretty quickly getting to the point where your opponent just has to cast a thing or they'll be, you know, they'll lose their hand. The thing is, though, as I say that, by the time you do that, you cast your four mana thing and then perhaps another four or five or three mana shrine, your opponent might be close to empty handed anyway. Or, you know, they'll at least be at the point where, yeah, they're going to discard whatever cards they draw on your turn, but, you know, they'll be able to just cast the thing when they draw it. So it's not, you know, if you're top decking, this obviously just does straight nothing. I don't know. Eh, I'm not particularly high on this card. I mean, I think that's why I feel like it's probably the worst Honden because once your opponent is down to let's say one card in hand or especially no cards in hand like this this Honden does not get any stronger for you having more shrines out there's a hard cap to the value that you're going to get out of this and that is the number of cards that your opponent still has in hand so if they are just top decking in a really grindy game dropping that card every single turn and you have two shrines this is doing no more than it would if you only had one yeah, the one thing I'll say against that, and we've nodded this a few times, is hands do tend to get clogged uh, in Kamigawa yeah. formats. You know, it's such a slow and grindy kind of format that, you know, your opponent is less likely to get empty-handed. I think where this really suffers is if you just, con- like, contrast it with the blue Honden, it's <laughs> it, lo- <laughs> it looks pretty bad, right? Because the blue Honden is, yeah, it's one more mana, but that's guaranteed card every turn. You know, just raw card advantage terms. They kind of do the same thing, except the blue one is guaranteed and this one isn't. And the blue one, you know, I don't know, you get the autonomy of choosing what you're going to do with the card you draw, whereas your opponent in this case, you know, they get to make the best choice for them. I don't know. It doesn't stack up that well. I I do still want to have it in as maybe a build around just because I I, I don't want to see any of the Honda just get cut outright. All five got to make it somehow, right? Yeah, they've got to be in at at least long enough for us to try them and see how how possible it is to actually I, I don't need to try them connor they all need to go okay in. you know they're just going to be in <laughs> we, we don't need to try them uh, the quantity question is funny though right like it looked looking back we did two of the white one which makes sense it's not very good three of the blue one like should we vary the number like i feel like a lot of cubes end up with excess symmetry and i want to avoid that so it's not like we have to have the same number but i do think in this case there's a genuine thing for the drafter here of like if you're going to play the Hondans, you basically need to go into a five color deck. And it does feel a little funny to have varied numbers of them to me. It's not, I don't know that it's intuitively would be intuitively obvious to me like, oh, yeah, there's a little more of the blue one and a little less of the black one and a little less still the white one or something. Yeah, I feel like I, I would want it to be, you know, at least a little bit more predictable whether you're going to see more Hondan. Once you've picked up that first or second one, I think you're right that you don't want to be thinking, oh, like, is there only one black Honden or two? 
like, am I going to be able to get all of them? So I, I feel like we should probably stick to two or maybe three of each of them. Yeah, two feels two somehow feels more right. I don't know that we quite need to go back to blue and cut it down to two yet, but having three of these, that, that just feels like a card where you're going to end up with a bunch of them clogging the back of the pack. Yeah. At which point the drafter's not having to like make an interesting decision to try to go into the Honda deck. It's just like, oh yeah, they always wheel. Another Honda. I'll always have that option. I, I like your build around and, and two. Okay, let's go to uh, one of my pet cards from this set. Hirobi, Death's Whale. Two BB for a 4-4 legendary creature spirit. Flying. Whenever a creature becomes the target of a spell or ability, destroy that creature. So four mana, 4-4 flyer. Um, with this really unique ability. I love this card. It's such a uh, interesting, it, it's one of those cards that you just look at it and you go, yeah, I want to build a deck around that. That seems really cool. That seems really powerful. It really like tickles your brain. Totally agree. And I mean, it's a, it's a four mana, four, four flyer too. So even if, you know, even yeah. if you're not getting a whole bunch of combo pieces together that let you do some crazy cool stuff, which is definitely possible with Hirobi. Yeah. He's still going to get in for some damage hopefully there's a reason they were able to cost him at that which is that he kind of removes himself right it like makes it really easy for your opponent to turn him off although if they do that i mean it's still one for one admittedly they probably got mana advantage because they pointed you know something cheap like a giant growth or a blessed breath or something at it uh you know i think it's pretty pretty solid as like yeah sometimes it just gets in as a beater but primarily it's there to say hey hey do you want to try to draft a hirobi deck because you know that would be really fun and interesting find that like sort of symmetrical effect of it really interesting like he you know his his cost and his ratio being a four mana four four flyer makes it so that you read this ability as a downside right like a four mana four four flyer needs to have some kind of drawback so your first read of this card is that this is a downside but then it gets you thinking of all the ways you could use this to your advantage and i think that's a really you know cool and interesting design to have yeah, and there are a lot of cards. So obviously, you know, this lets you turn any random kind of pump spell type effect into a kill spell. Um, but there are also a surprising number of creatures that let you do something repeatable with Hirobi for very little or no mana. So uh, crunching through the spoiler, I think at a minimum we have uh, Aki Drillmaster, uh, which is just a little guy who taps to grant haste, grant something haste, eight and a half tails, uh, the legendary land cycle that give legendary creatures some ability. Frost Wielder, which is basically a Tim effect. He's like a prodigal sorcerer. Ghostlit tra- uh, Raider, Honkyu, uh, Innocence Kami, Kabuto Moth, Katsune Diviner, Skullmane Baku, Splittail Moko, that which was taken, and wa- Waxmane Baku. So like pretty long list of cards that can interact with Roby in, in interesting ways. Yeah. I think this this is definitely going uh, outside of Kewigawa, but my favorite combo that I saw in just looking at Gatherer comments was this with bold weir intimidator uh which i think was <laughs> wow. let's see first printed in future sight uh bold weir intimidator uh, he's a giant with uh an activated ability that lets you pay one red mana to make target creature become a coward until end of turn and someone on gatherer said this plus bold weir intimidator pay one red mana to make any creature die of cowardice <laughs> i thought that was a pretty, <laughs> pretty nice combo <laughs> that's great oh that's awesome he also commands uh, 467 uh, decks, which isn't a huge number, but it's a respectable number on EDH rec. And I don't think that's power level so much as just it's really cool. And it's just the kind of card that you see it. And I can't imagine there's too many magic players who read Hirobi without feeling some pull to try to build something with it. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, where do you rate it? I rate Hirobi as an auto-include. I don't know about the power level here, but again, this is one of those cards where I almost don't care about the power level because it is, to me, iconic from the art to the name to the effect. I, I can't imagine playing this cube without Hirobi in it. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about the art? Because it is I was hoping iconic. you would, because it's so hard. Okay, so it's uh, it's kind of got an almost engraving quality to it, or it's, it's, it's not at all photorealistic. Okay, so Hirobi is a kind of a almost like a, an ox skull, ox slash human skull, like a screaming skull, almost like the scream mask yeah, with, yeah. with horns on it. And then he's got this billowing pink purple robe behind and around him and these flaming kind of, I think they're those little prayer notes you put up at a Japanese shrine swirling around it. And then on this background that actually it's a very funny background. <laughs> to be honest, it looks a little bit like a photo of some trees was put through a 2003 Photoshop shop filter. It looks exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So the background's a bit of a letdown, but the front part with Hirobi is great. Uh, he's so iconic and so kind of abstract looking. He doesn't really look like embodied in the art. And in this case, I'm okay with it just because it, it makes it seem more spirit like and fantastical to me. I actually really like him with the background because it reminds me of sort of very old Pokemon cards. Oh, yes, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, yes. you know, you'd have like the like a hand-drawn or hand-painted image of the Pokemon just sort of slapped on top of like a holographic effect or even something that looked like maybe a kind of blurred photograph. Like a low-budget anime. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm wondering, what does this look like in foil? I feel like with all these whites and purples, this could this must have really popped in foil. Because foils oh, were yeah. better back then. Let's be real. They did a better job picking out parts of the art in foil and just making them look cool, which is why foils from the set are mind-blowingly expensive. We might have to uh, start saving up for a foil Hirobi. Yeah, let me go. Uh, well, first, I was on YouTube just now trying to find a foil Hirobi, and I didn't find a video one, but I did find the top video on YouTube is called Please don't build a Hirobi deck, uh, which, <laughs> no. which makes me really sad. No. I know. Who, who is this person? Who are you, uh, Eric Dragon Highlander? Okay, that's a great name. Eric Dragon Highlander. Hello. EDH. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But Eric, write in and tell us why. We're not going to watch your yeah. video. You need to write no. in and tell us why not to include him. Defend yourself, Eric. Oh, wow. If you want to foil, it's going to set you back going to set you back 42 US dollars Ooh. potentially for a, a near mint copy. Wow. But, you know, you can't put a price on happiness Mm-mm. or on death. Auto include? Oh yeah. All right. All right, this next one is uh I think we both feel a little less favorably about, but it's another legendary spirit. We've got Iname Death Aspect, 4BB for a 4/4 legendary spirit. Uh, when he comes into play, you can search your library for any number of spirit cards and put them into your graveyard. If you do, shuffle your library. So this is a one of our rare enter the battlefield effects and definitely an interesting one. But I think the problem with Iname is that there are just not that many cards in the block that let you take advantage of this in a big way. I think that this effect is sort of meant to be paired with Iname life aspect. Uh, which is sort of the the green version of this same creature. Kind of a cool flavor thing there. The life aspect lets you put any number of spirits from your graveyard into your hand when it dies. So there's sort of a cool duality happening with these two cards, but note that the life aspect doesn't bring the spirits back from your graveyard into play. It puts them into your hand, and it's a pretty slow way... <laughs> to do that. It does play nice with Soul Shift though, right? I mean, yeah. I think the idea is you dump a bunch of Soul Shift 
uh, creatures into your yard and then you soul shift them back over time. I mean, it's super slow and grindy, um, but I don't think it's totally indefensible. The stat line is close to indefensible. <laughs> Six mana for a 4-4 four, four is not great. It's better than Death Curse Ogre. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, all right, all right. I think I would feel a lot better about him if he did, if he had soul shift. Yeah, yeah, it's funny that he doesn't because I feel like he could and that would be totally okay. Yeah. It's funny that this is one of the few true enter the battlefield effects in the block. And yeah, it's like one where it does flickering doesn't do anything, right? We, right? we keep puzzling over the ability to basically flicker things or bounce spirits back to your hand. But in this case, like you're already going to dump all the spirits into your yard that you want to dump the first time in Ame enter. So I just, I think that's kind of ironic. Yeah. Um, I had this as an insta cut at first, but I kind of want to, I kind of want to try them and see if there's a way we can make this come together in some sort of soul shift deck. Yeah, I uh, also feel like that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets cut, but I think it's worth trying as a okay curve topper for the soul shift deck. I do worry it's just like way too slow um, because of course you get the things and then your things have to die and then you have to recast them. Like a lot of things have to happen for this to matter, but it's uh, I'm willing to give them a shot. Yeah, I think we should. We've talked a lot about the thing where spirits look like they should be flying, but this is the poster child. Like literally 20% <laughs> of the art of Iname aspect is these giant bat wings and yet it doesn't fly. I mean, it's genuinely confusing from a play perspective because you look at it and you just assume that it's flying. Well, the lower half of the body is this sort of uh, big centipede kind of yeah, spine really thing. Really gross. Maybe Iname is tethered to the ground by this spine. Blech. So it doesn't have a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can, you're you're not into the flavor of black, other than Hirobi. No, I love black. I I like it when it's spooky, like Hirobi. I mean, I don't mind exactly, but it's just I don't know. There's I enough mean, gross stuff. Iname's spooky too. Like this flavor text. Iname revels in sadistic glee at the crushing of souls, but soon mourns the lives so cruelly cut short. So the cycle begins. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty spooky. It's pretty good. This is also, uh, it doesn't command a lot of EDH decks. It commands 150, but it does have a really unique kind of play pattern EDH of it's a really cute combo with a card called Mortal Combat, which uh, Mortal Combat basically boils down to if you have 20 or more creatures in your graveyard, you win the game. Uh, and so I, I do really like the idea of building this together with Mortal Combat into this kind of janky but uh, fun combo deck. Yeah, that does seem fun. Uh, so are you willing to come up for your Instacut to a meh and just, just throw one of them in? Yeah, let's, let's have them in here. We, we're, we're in a generous mood today. We're willing to give a lot of things, you know, just a chance to prove themselves. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of the cards in black are probably doing a better job selling themselves than what we saw in white and blue. Okay. Let's go to a card where I, I definitely worry I'm too generous. Kami of Lunacy. 4BB for a 4-1 spirit. Flying. Soul Shift 5. Uh, so yeah, 6 mana, 4-1 flyer, Soul Shift 5. I feel funny saying that I have this as kind of okay because I spent a significant chunk of time in the blue episode dunking on Soratami Mirror Guard, which is a 3-1 flyer. But somehow the one toughness Achilles heel doesn't bother me this year because he has Soul Shift. You know, you can bring back another spirit. So the fact that he almost certainly dies to something like a Lantern Kami... Uh, without really affecting the board, you know, but you got something back. So I, I don't know. Somehow that added up to me to fineness. It only cost you six mana. <laughs> yeah, it only cost you six mana. Two of which have to be black. It's, I've got this guy as an Instacut. One of our listeners, Lad's World, pointed us to a really good write-up 
about drafting champions. And one of the really interesting points that was made in that write-up is that there are a ton of creatures in this set with one or two toughness. So many. And not very many with three or more toughness. And this, I feel like, is the poster child of that sort of theme in Kamigawa. Like, this this is a creature that is going to die to so many things. I just, six mana for something with one toughness, like, you got to do something more than just soul shift. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I somehow had this up at like a 2x mana, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if I, it actually is kind of okay, just because soul shift, it's a curve topper for soul shift, but I'm, I'm fine with just cutting it. It's not a card anyone's, I think, going to mourn. Can we can we just talk about how many black flyers there are in this set? I feel like there are a ton of them. Like it's it's almost a, a theme here as much as it was in blue. Yeah, I, black has always been you know kind of the secondary or tertiary color for flying after blue and and white. A lot of black cards have flying. Many of the ones that don't fly have fear. There's definitely a lot of evasive critters going on. Although just scanning the spoiler, I think sort of by coincidence. Almost all the black flyers are in the first half of the alphabet. So we happen to be covering them today. I'm looking at the second half of the alphabet and not a single one of those fly. So maybe that's just like a weird distorted thing. Hmm. I'm, I'm glad you put that out there so I don't get disappointed later on. When yeah, we... just setting the record straight. <laughs> what do you think? Should we should we have this lunatic in? Oh boy. Um, I'm worried I'm just being too generous and not insta-cutting hard enough. And I kind of want to just insta-cut it. Yeah, I think we, you know, we got to, it may be playable, maybe, but we got to just get rid of some that may be playable. Yeah, you got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. And I, I think we can draw it at Kami of Lunacy. All right, line drawn. Uh, well, let's talk about another Black Flyer, Kami of the Waning Moon. Great name. 2B for a 1-1 spirit with flying. And whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, target creature gains fear until end of turn. Um... So there are nine cards across the whole block that either have fear or can give fear to themselves or to another creature. I don't, I don't have a, like a great, well-articulated reason for this, but I just feel like this is one we can live without. I just can't get excited about a three-mana 1-1, one, one, even if it has You fly. live in fear of fear, Connor. I do live in fear of fear. I, I want minimal fear in this set as much as I like scary things. <laughs> The art is already scary enough. Yeah. Uh, in the set, this this art isn't very scary. Yeah, I, this one's weird. Uh, it kind of makes me nervous. Like, I don't think it's that good. A three mana one one flyer is obviously not setting the world on fire. Repeatable fear is nasty, you know, in the same way that Dance of Shadows was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't love that from a play pattern perspective. Uh, it's got the same fear problem. You know, and the additionally, if your opponent is able to you know, is playing black, then this gets a lot worse because it essentially doesn't do anything. And now you're just playing a three mana one, one flyer, which is just embarrassing. Like it's a, it's an awkward card for that reason. Yeah. Awkward is a a good word for this guy. (laughs) Yeah. The the other awkward thing about Kami of the waning moon is that black along with green is the primary soul shift color. And this is one of just two, three drop spirits in black in the whole block. Whoa. Uh, which is really awkward. Like there's this giant gaping hole in the soul shift mana curve right at three. I, it, that is the one thing that makes me think maybe we want some copies of this, even though I, I'm not a fan of the card from a power level or a play perspective. Yeah. It's a little disappointed. Like I, I get what you're saying, but I'd be pretty disappointed to be soul shifting this back. 
Yeah, that's true. Maybe you know, I might, I might just want a two mana. I might just want an Ashen Skin Zubera instead of this guy. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and the other uh, three mana one is Thief of Hope, who I like quite a lot. Yeah. I think he's fun. And then I guess you know, if you're in other colors, you know, green has Kami of the Hunt, Gnarled Mass. You know, these kind of nice curve fillers on three, and of course, our our boy River Kaijin mm-hmm. comes in at three. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I'm fine following you down to an Instacut on this. I think uh, I, I just don't really want to play with it. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't think we need this. Uh, let's go to Kiku Knight's Flower, BB. For a 1-1 human assassin, legendary. 2 BB tap. Target creature deals damage to itself equal to its power. Okay, let's start with the effect. I have lots of thoughts on the art, but let's start with the effect. I think the card is good, bordering on obnoxious. I built a spreadsheet to just try to figure out how many creatures this kills in the block because I couldn't figure out a scryfall. You gotta you gotta have a separate spreadsheet to do that. Yeah, though so there, there is a dedicated spreadsheet. I'll link it from the show notes to the blog post or something. Uh, she kills a lot of creatures. So there are, of the 336 creatures in the block, she kills 264, which is fully wow. 80%, uh, wow. which is a lot. That's a, that's a lot of killing power uh, for a two drop, even if the ability is pretty expensive. That's higher even than I thought. We, we've been talking about all these, you know, low toughness creatures, but that's 80% is higher than I would have expected. Yeah, and she also, unlike, uh, you know, our ogre friend from earlier, she doesn't require any special investment to do her thing. You know, she just starts uh, doing it starting next turn. Uh, I do think she's very slow. Like, obviously, four mana is slow, but, like, I think this is maybe slightly less devastating than it looks purely because it's an extremely vulnerable creature at a 1-1. It has no other, you know, no ability to go mix it up and and fight. And four mana is a lot to have to pour into it. So I I think she's maybe, I I worried at first that she's dangerous. I'm not sure she's dangerous, but I do think she's strong. I I feel like this one's going to be, or is hard for us to evaluate without having played with her a little bit more. Because like playing this on turn two as a two mana one, one that can't do anything until turn four is, you know, not, not a great moment. (laughs) And it it seems like a really strong ability, but it's on such a like squishy body. You know, you got to wonder how long that's actually going to last and how much impact it's going to have. Also, she cannot kill river Kaiji. Oh, unplayable. So that, I mean, that's, that's a big strike right there. Yeah, you need to be able to counter that, you know, firmly in every color. You need to you need to know what your River Kaijin strategy is. Yeah, and it's not Kiku. Uh, this might actually be my least favorite art in the entire block. I absolutely loathe this art. Wow. Yeah. Strong feelings. Tell us more. I like that there's a weird Dutch angle here. That is basically the one thing I like. Uh, we don't get a lot of that in Magic Art. I think it's fun that there's an unconventional angle. Uh, it all goes downhill from there. So she, I think she's supposed to be dropping this rose uh, in the art. But there's not really any sense of motion to it. And so it kind of just looks like there's a rose floating in midair or mm-hmm. like a decorative motif in the art. Like it doesn't, there's no real sense of motion to that. And then her proportions are all kind of awkward, especially in her face. Like if you zoom in, her face looks like, you know, she actually looks basically like Nicole Bolas's like goblin face, baby <laughs> chibi version of Nicole Bolas. Like she looks like basically Nicole Bolas on a sort of generic sexy ninja lady. The background is like, I don't even know yeah, what, what the is background that? is. It's just, it's just like white with some cracks or tree branches. Like, I don't know what we're looking up at here. I thought they were tree branches, but they doesn't really, they don't really connect like tree branches. The closer you look. Yeah. It's just like, it was, it was, it's just like, oh wait, I need a background. It's kind of, the, you know, a lot of yeah. alpha cards have this of like, oh, oh, background. Right. Got it. Let's do a wash. Yeah. And this, <laughs> this kind of has, has that same look to it. Yeah. I, I feel like with the 
flower that I assume she's dropping it, but that's actually the first time that I've ever, you mentioning it just now was the first time I've ever thought that that's what was happening in this. Oh, me too. I've looked at this for 18 years and it was only yesterday when I started to study the art. I was like, oh, she's dropping the flower. I was just like, I always thought there was just a flower floating in the art. Yeah, it's just sort of hovering there. Maybe she's like channeling her magic through this flower. But what frustrates me is like if if the flower had sort of been angled in a different way so that the stem was like still pointing up toward her hand, it would sort of suggest that it's being dropped, something like that. But yeah, it just looks really awkward hovering there at kind of covering her elbow. It's also super literal. Like she's the knight's flower, which I just take to be a sort of, you know, like she's some kind of assassin lady. But you know, it's like, oh, flower, got it. <laughs> Put a flower in the art. Make sure that comes through. And it's also kind of hard to see like, what is... How is she killing things? At least here, it's got like she drop a flower, and then when the Kami of the Waning Moon comes along and picks it up, it's he's poisoned. Like, I don't really know what the scenario is here. Oh, no. It's got really cool flavor text. The flavor text is, A wanderer has told me of an assassin in the Takenuma Swamp who uses her dark arts to animate her enemy's shadows against them. A wild tale, but it explains much. Diary of Azusa. So that's awesome. And I wish the art depicted that, because that <laughs> sounds really cool. Yeah, there, well, there is a card in Saviors called Kiku's Shadow, a sorcery that basically does the effect that Kiku has, but on a sorcery. Really? Kiku's Shadow, BB, sorcery, target creature deals damage to itself equal to its power. And the art in that one does exactly what... Oh, it's savage. It's so good. Wow. Yeah, it's great. It's it's this guy's own shadow is like reaching up and sticking this giant claw right through his heart. Yeah, it's gory and... Wow. Okay. I look forward to talking about that one. Yeah. So that's like exactly that. That's what Kiku's method of assassination is supposed to be. But her own art uh, does absolutely nothing. Just implies she walks around like dropping flowers. Yeah. Just kind of dropping flowers. And these four, these poor Kami of the Waning Moon happen to find them (laughs) and get killed. It's tragic. Not a lot of love for this in EDH from a command commanding the deck perspective which makes sense commands 40 decks which is more than i expected to be honest yeah. and i assume that's just because the name is cool or somebody had it lying around and they shuffled it up with 99 swamps and said <laughs> good enough yeah i feel like she's playable probably yeah i think so just because it's a repeatable kill effect i think we're gonna have to give it a try in this case because i think we're either gonna well it may end up in a sweet spot and i think there's some chance it ends up being either too slow to really matter or a little too obnoxious, and we, you know, we have to take, give it a hard glance. But I'm fine making her playable, even though I don't like the art. There is a, a potential combo here that I wanted to mention before we move on with a card called Ragged Veins, which we'll get to on next hmm. episode. It's uh, an aura uh, that you can play for one B. It has flash, and whenever the creature it enchants is dealt damage, its controller loses that much life. So in theory, you could put Ragged Veins on an opponent's. <laughs> Gut wrencher oni. Interpretation of combo. <laughs> Gut wrencher oni. Okay. And kill the oni and deal five damage to your opponent. Okay. For just yeah, one. That's... For just one card and six mana. Okay. I mean, so, I... <laughs> think about it's it. It's not bad. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward to ragged veins. I think that's an interesting card. Yeah. All right. Single playable copy. I think so. I really think if it wasn't for the art, I'd actually be pretty excited about Kiku because it is an interesting, fun design. This card, I think, we'll both feel less ambiguous about. Kokusho, mm-hmm. the Evening Star. 4BB for a 5-5 five, five legendary dragon spirit with flying. 
When Kokusho is put into a graveyard from play, each opponent loses five life and you gain life equal to the life lost this way. Kokusho is, I think, one of the most iconic cards in this set. Uh, he's a legend, not just because he's legendary. <laughs> Appears in over 16,000 decks on EDH Rec. Wow. Just an awesome card. The most expensive creature in Champions in terms of how much money you're going to pay to get this card. Hmm. Going for about $22 right now. And I, I think probably the most iconic cool dragon in my mind yeah i think so i think uh this is the most uh played uh black card in the set on edh rec it appears in i think three percent of all black decks which is pretty good he's the number one most cubed of all the dragons uh in the cycle uh he appears in four percent of all cubes which again is really solid for kamigawa threat um yeah and he's just really playable i mean honestly not even just playable really really strong like six mana five five flyer obviously great just on its own. And then the lifelinked Lava Axe that comes with it. I mean, Lava Axe, I mean, obviously Lava Axe isn't a great card, but you know, typically to dome your opponent for five, you're looking at like four to five mana. So getting that tacked onto a five, five flyer for six is really, really good. And then you gain the life on top of it. This thing just slays. Yeah. And you know, I really like how, you know, the, the design of the dragon spirits is meant to, meant to create this damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where your opponent is either having to take five damage from this dragon uh, every single turn, or if they have a way to deal with it, they're still suffering, you know, a pretty painful death trigger. And I feel like that's really, really hammered home with Kokusho, literally forcing them to lose life, give you life. Like it's a very painful decision for them. Whereas with um, Kega, the Tide Star, the Blue Dragon, for example, if they have no creatures or don't have very good creatures for you to take control of, then Kega kind of whiffs a little bit all the dragons have kind of backbreaking effects tacked to them but kukusho is the only one who can just end the game right on the spot right. too uh, which is notable like if your opponent is at less than five like what do they do they are either going to die to an attack or they're going to die when they kill it yeah, yeah. And that's that's quite something the art on this too is just amazing oh it's epic he's uh kukusho is looks like f flying through this kind of celestial mountain range maybe like he just looks enormous in this art like miles yeah. and miles long his tail is sort of sweeping through these clouds that are also kind of forming some sort of creature if you look in the top right corner of the art it's a little unclear what's happening there uh but he just looks so powerful and godlike um and there's just this this really epic sense of scale and majesty yeah, the art on this is by uh, another one of the rare ones by a Japanese artist. It's by uh, Tsutomu Kawade, who looks like uh, they've only done 19 pieces for magic, um, most of them in Kamigawa block, and then a handful in Ravnica and one in Future Sight. And it's a pity because this art uh, demonstrates some serious chops. Yeah. Tsutomu also did uh, your Dripping Tongue Zubera, which uh, I think you're on record as saying is your favorite of the Zubera due to grossness. Yeah, there you go. You're really coming down in pro-gross territory today. I am. You're learning something about me. Yeah, I, I mean, this. we've said auto-include about every dragon. I suspect we will say about auto-include about every dragon, but Kokusho is the, one of the most auto-includable of the auto-includes. Yeah, probably the one of the easiest auto-includes we're going to have probably in the whole set. Yes, and we know that the dragons are uh, probably too good um, and probably better than uh, they should be. And uh, I don't think there's any scenario in which we cut them. I just love them too much. Yeah, absolutely.
Let's go to Kuro Pitlord. Um, so Kuro Pitlord is 6BBB for a 9-9 legendary demon spirit. At the beginning of your upkeep, sack unless you pay BBBB, so four black mana. And then you could pay one life to give target creature minus one, minus one until end of turn. It's funny. I feel like I should have a soft spot for this card because I have a soft spot for the Myogen. I have a soft spot for the Unspeakable, for Konda, you know, for all these big clumsy legends. But Kuro, just, eh, he leaves me pretty cold. Uh, like the art, I think, is fine on this. It's almost too abstract for me, like kind of like a collage or something. But uh, there's just something about the design of this card that makes me sad. Like he's a nine, a nine mana, nine, nine. And he does have this powerful ability to kill a bunch of stuff, but by the time you get to casting a nine drop, you may not have that much life to play with anyway. And he doesn't have any kind of combat ability. And then there's like a lack of, there's an asymmetry to the design that I find really irritating of he costs three black designated to cast and four to maintain, hmm. which just feels clumsy. I don't know. I've never liked uh, Kuro. Yeah, that, that asymmetry is a little annoying. I think what bothers me about him is that he there's no evasion at all on Kuro. So you're you're paying yep. nine for a nine nine that doesn't fly, can't trample, doesn't have fear, doesn't have any way to get around a one one blocker other than this pay one life minus one yeah. minus one triggered ability. And I took a look at sort of the big demon lord type cards throughout Magic's history. And if you go all the way back, like looking at everything from Lord of the Pit back in Alpha to the modern era substantial majority of these big demon lords have flying trample or both kuro who's like above average cost for a demon lord has neither yeah and it's a he invites the comparison right he's literally called pit lords you can't help but compare him <laughs> right. to lord of the pit yeah uh, and it, it's particularly frustrating there because it's like it's alpha you know the power level i mean apart from the broken outliers is possibly even lower than kamigawa certainly not higher it's like why does he not get something like you're paying nine mana just let me win the game basically yeah i will say like as, as annoying as the asymmetry with this sort of you know sustained cost of bbbb is uh it's pr like it's pretty doable you know he's not yeah. a, a demon that's making you sacrifice a creature every turn or discard your hand or something like that like if you're getting to the point that you can play this guy you're going to be able to pay that mana and i i do think that this pay one life minus one minus one thing is a little bit more significant than you're giving it credit for because black does have some you know kind of decent life gain in this set mm -hmm. uh if devouring greed or kokusho give you a bunch of extra life to work with then you can use this ability to basically clear the way for kuro to swing in for nine yeah, and also if you, I think you're right that if you kill two or three things with it, like you're already pretty happy. That's like a two for one, a three for one. But it's yeah. nine mana. It should you should be really really happy. I, like, is this thing ever? I guess my chief objection is: is this ever getting cast? Um, I just struggle to see a scenario in which you get up to nine mana with any degree of reliability. Yeah, there is a combo you can kind of pull off. I'm on a combo kick. <laughs> Between Kuro and a card called Goryo's Vengeance. Yeah. Um, so Goryo's Vengeance is an instant in Betrayers that lets you return a legendary creature card from your graveyard to play. It gains haste, and then you remove it from the game at end of turn, and you can also splice Goryo's Vengeance. So the idea is you would get Kuro into your graveyard. You know, Iname, Death Aspect would be one way to do that. You bring it back for just two mana with Goryo's Vengeance. It has haste. 
you use this triggered ability to wipe your opponent's board and then swing in for nine. Uh, so that's not bad, but is probably asking for more setup than Kuro is mm. worth. I mean, yeah, with Gorio's Vengeance, this is awesome. It might be one of the best Gorio's Vengeance targets in the set, now that you bring that up. I'm not sure that's enough to include it. I think it probably would be, but the challenge is getting him into the graveyard in the first place. And So you'd have to draft them both, you'd have to get them both into your hand, and then you have to get Kuro into the graveyard. Mm-hmm. And that, that does seem like a lot. Of, <laughs> there's a lot of moving pieces there. But if you can get Gorio's Vengeance, Iname Death Aspect, yep. and Kuro... Yep. And then play yep. Iname before you draw Kuro and hold okay. Goryo's Vengeance that whole time. Okay. Then, you know, pain for your opponent. You read him and you kind of assume that there's some card that cheats a demon into play. Mm-hmm. Like it just seems like there should be with this thing. And yet there, there isn't. There's no card in the set that cheats a demon specifically into play. Even though I feel like this and Bloodspeaker, there's cards that seem like they should that, that suggest that. That's sort of a running theme in this whole set is it seems like there should be a card which would enable this and there just isn't. So do you want to keep this? I have it as an instacut just because I don't think we're casting nine mana things generally and I don't I don't think I'm casting Kuro, but I'm I'm open to trialing it, I suppose. I have him as a meh. Just <laughs> one copy, of course. <laughs> but like I I do kind of want to try it. I want to see if something this this big and ridiculous can never make its way into a game. But I suspect we'll probably, we would probably end up cutting that fairly quickly. Okay, I mean, we can keep it. I'm, I'm going to make you choose. You want to keep keep or cut? I want to keep. All right. I thought I thought you were going to make me, you were going to do some sort of demon's bargain with me where I'd have to choose between Kuro and a card I actually like. <laughs> yeah, you've kind of gone to bat for him, but even though I don't think you're actually that big a fan. I've just been, I've been talking myself into it with this Goryeo's Vengeance thing. All right, well, we'll give him a mat. Oh, and by the way, he commands a 17 decks on EDH rec, which honestly was more than I expected just because I'm, yeah. I don't know why. I'm surprised it's any. Yeah, there's so many other cool, big, legendary demons. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on to a black card that commands quite a few more decks than that. Yeah. Maronar. 3BB for a 2-3 legendary rat rogue. All rats have fear. You can tap him and sacrifice a rat to put X11 black rat creature tokens into play, where X is the number of rats you control. Maronar is the most popular champion's commander by far, commanding close to 3,000 decks, EDH rec. I also thought it was interesting in kind of researching the background of this set that uh, Mark Rosewater has sort of mentioned that having a rat lord, a lord type effect on a rat for rats, like Maronar, was something that a lot of people were actually requesting back when this huh. was printed. Like a lot of people wanted a lord for their rat decks, which I thought was kind of surprising. Huh, I'm surprised there were rat decks ahead of... Th- I mean, I guess there was uh, Relentless Rats and uh, there was... Uh, <laughs> I'm blanking. What, what other iconic rat cards were pulling people into this deck? They're out there, but I don't know what they are. Yeah, and there's not a lot of rats in all of Magic. There's only 63 in total and like 20. Anyway, that's fascinating. In Kamigawa, there are only 14 other rats besides Maronar. Yeah. So I'm not sure how how useful or impactful this ability is going to be. Yeah, I think the answer is um, unfortunately not that much um, because you need two other rats in play, two other rats besides Maronar to start uh, churning out value. 
which I think is uh, a lot easier said than done because most of the rats, there's not that many rats and many of them are not very good. Uh, there's a couple that are like total staples like Nazumi Cutthroat. Uh, yeah, for the most part, I don't think you're running that many rats and then you'd have to get them all into play. And then then it's really cool. Although even then it's it's quite slow. You know, the first turn you do it, you get, you know, you get two or three, which is pretty good. But, you know, it's a couple of turns of activating it before it really gets overwhelming. I mean, he does he does have fear by default, which is, you know, dangerous as we've discussed, but powerful. And he does give all your other rats fear. Uh, so that's something to think about. Yeah, let me uh, think about it. Um, not, not changing your I mind. Think I'm still not. I think I'm still not impressed. It's where I land. <laughs> <laughs> we we are gonna get into a whole bunch of the rats of this set at the beginning of our next episode, and I think that Mero Nar, you know, obviously makes all of those better by giving them fear. But I, I think that you're kind of right that there's just it's going to be too hard to set up in in a cube format it's going to be too hard to set up a situation where you're getting enough rats out there for this to really matter. Yeah. It's fascinating to me that this is the most popular commander in the set by far. So there's like 2,885 decks running this guy, which makes him the number three, most popular mono black commander full stop. People love rats. And it's the number two, number 72, most popular commander across all color combinations. And it's just funny to me, like what I, I I like rats. I can't say that I'm like this into them. I wonder what it is that drives such uh, such incredible love for our um, furry friends. Yeah, if if anybody out there does have a rat deck, or which statistically one of you probably does, it seems likely. <laughs> or if you just have an affinity for rats, either in Magic or IRL, uh, let us know. <laughs> yeah, like he's he's definitely more interesting. You know, this this prompts you to build your deck in a certain way to pick certain cards to make choices that you might not otherwise make, which is, I think, why I like him. And, and of course, it's also dangerous, right? Because yeah. it, it implies that there are going to be enough rats in the cube to make it work. And yeah. I'm not sure if there will be, but I think we can at least make a give it a try. Yeah, I think we should try it. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, it feels kind of funny to cut basically the most popular commander, <laughs> commander right. in the block. We've got to at least give him a shot, right? Where do you, where do we land on the rating? I see you had them auto include. I presume because it's iconic. I had it at Matt. I don't really know where to put Marona. Is it a build around? Maybe it's a build around, like a lot of our funny cards. You know, I think you're right. I did have him as an auto include mostly because of just the popularity of this card, and I felt like we'd be remiss to not at least try to do something with rats. But I think I think you're right. That makes it a build around. Yeah. All right. Let's let's put one of them in as a build around. All right. All right, and our last card for today's episode is Midnight Covenant. One and a black for an enchantment aura. Enchanted creature has black. This creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. So it just uh, it turns any creature into a shade. I found this card really hard to rate. Um, as we said earlier, shade is a deceptively powerful ability. It, it is really good. It really uh, amps up the value of your creatures. It puts your opponent into a tough spot. It lets you close out games really, really quickly. On the other hand, this is an aura and auras, you know, are famously bad, right? Or they famously invite two for ones. They put you in a, um, a spot where you can end up down a lot of cards. Uh, and so I just, honestly, I struggled to rate it, but I landed on a meh just because I like that it's a unique thing. I think we've ended up cutting most of the auras we've seen so far. I think that's likely to continue because mm-hmm. auras are struggle to be good. But I think this one seems more likely than most to me to be tolerable. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely above average compared to the other auras 
in this set. But I just I have trouble getting excited about it. The art doesn't help I, because I, I think the art's the art is very mad. It's it's not very exciting. Yeah, the the art is uh, pretty pretty awkward. Really, it's uh, we've got a human standing, I guess, in some water in a swamp or something, uh, and he's rearing his head backwards and his mouth is wide wide open and his whole kind of head and face looks really awkward and distorted actually but he's he's got like this smoke probably going into his mouth not coming out of it i think it's covid oh it's midnight <laughs> covid mint well i definitely don't want this in then <laughs> oh no i biased you further against yeah that. i just he's got these big big distorted hands so i think is a common yeah. symptom yeah, <laughs> but I just I see the value of this card. I see where you know it would be good, especially on one of the numerous flyers we've seen. But I just have some trouble getting excited about it. Yeah, I I do too. I, I honestly I'm mostly fighting for it because I just feel like we've got to include a couple of R's. It just feels funny to not have any, and I think they're all pretty bad except for uh, the one that gives regeneration. Uh, I think it's called Blessing of Leeches and Betrayers. But I, I'm not. I'm not going to pretend. I think this card is great. I don't think it is. I, I hadn't thought about it from that Aura's angle. So maybe, maybe we keep it in just so we can have a little bit of enchanting of creatures happening. Play, if players don't see enchanting of creatures, they're going to be. There's going to be rebellion. Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that people look for when they check out a new cube. Is how many Aura's are in here? Yeah, where are the auras? Yeah, it's funny. There are a lot of auras in this block. There's 29, which strikes me as a lot. We've actually got a couple in already uh, that I've spaced on. We put Cage of Hands in, and we think it's quite good. We put Indomitable Will in, and we think it's quite tolerable. Yeah, It is kind of downhill. <laughs> we put in uh, Mystic Restraints, which is good. Um, but it get, it goes kind of downhill from here, uh, honestly. They, they seem to get largely worse. But anyway, I, can we can we put one of them in? Yeah, we can we can have one in. Yeah, I can I can alter the art if you want. I can like just just sharpie the whole thing out and just put in like a smiley face and a midnight moon or something like a full moon. <laughs> okay, that that sounds good. Tell you what, I will come up with several concepts for the art and I'll submit them to you. One of them will be my smiley midnight moon. Another one will be I'll lean into the covenant and it'll be like kind of writing on like a piece of paper. Uh-huh. Um, and you could choose another. Maybe they'll all be glow in the dark, and you can choose a, an art concept. I love. I'll, I'll I'll let you know. I don't mind these these impaled hands in the background. I think that's that's <laughs> kind of a cool detail. Those. That's kind of a cool detail. I just I mostly don't <laughs> like the guy in the front. So if you could just find a way to get rid of him, okay, that sounds good to me. Okay, what if I just again sharpie him out and I just put a smiley face there? Uh, sure. It's just you smiling at the, it's you smiling at the impaled hands. <laughs> just grinning, grinning amidst all these impaled smoking hands. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, we'll put one of them in. All right. Well, my dog is looking at me like he who hungers, so I better go give him some marrow to gnaw on. <laughs> uh, if you have any feedback, thoughts, or memories to share about any of the cards or topics today, or about any Champions of Kamigawa cards that we haven't talked about quite yet, uh, you can always email us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com. In our next episode, we're planning to cover the last 25 black cards of Kamigawa, so uh, if any of those are cards you have memories or play experience of, let us know. Uh, and you can also follow along as we develop the cube. 
Uh, just follow us on Cube Cobra, and you can check clockspinning.com for links to the Cube. Until next time, though, I'm Austin. And I'm Connor. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.